Welcome to Alessia's Divine Comedy, a journey through Dante's masterpiece, a read-along podcast hosted by me, Alessia Cesana Harris. Episode 28, Inferno, Canto Ventottesimo, the second day, early afternoon. Today is a rare day that I'm recording on the day of release and in fact I'm late. So I will dive into it straight away, except that I wanted to highlight the fact today is the memorial of St. Charles Langlois and Companions Martyrs. I'm sorry, I definitely butchered the name. He was only 26 and the other martyrs who were under his tutelage as the chief page of the king were even younger. I encourage you to look up the moving story of courage and steadfast faith, especially if you, like me, have a liturgical calendar full of white Italian saints and know very little about the saints of the rest of the Church Universal. I've wrote a note about this saint before opening today's canto and it appears he's not full of Italians for once. It is, however, not exactly friendly to the modern standards of interfaith dialogue. This bolgia is dedicated to the sowers of scandal and schism, who the commentator Anna Maria Chiavacci Leonardi defines as referring to civil discord and religious discord respectively. She is the editor of the edition I used in school back in the day and she is quoted in both the Columbia and Darth Mouse projects. The first 30 or so verses are a description of the unimaginable devastation of the warlike scene of the bolgia ended with a graphic description of the state in which we find the first person that Dante spoke to today, and that is the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad. Slightly less gruesome that is the description of Ali, who appears to be his son-in-law. According to Chiavacci Leonardi, there was a tradition that sees Muhammad as having been a Christian priest before turning away from the faith, but I'm not persuaded that this was what Dante had in mind. Of course, it's possible that Dante was not too strict with his own definitions of the various sins so that it could feature characters where it suited him uh, and his overarching goal for the poem. But if he was guilty of merely leading people astray from the truth of the church, it had been more suited for the Sith Circle. However, there was a mention to the Saracene in the previous canto, and we are less than 10 years after the ending of the most recent crusade in 1291, so I think starting a long series of wars seems like a stronger explanation. However, it gives Dante a prophecy about the leader of an offshoot of the Franciscans who were condemned as heretics. They were a guerrilla group in the mountains around the Sisia Valley in northern Italy, uh, which justified their looting as acts for the redemption of the rest of the population that still followed the Church of Rome. It is no surprise that it ended with capital punishment, although it was a civic affair rather than a religious one, as there are no records that he or his followers were ever tried in a church tribunal. We know he was declared a heretic because the Inquisition published the refutation of his ideas based on the letters that he wrote while he was alive. Dante appears to be painting Fra Dolcino first and foremost as a military man, which to an extent was true of Muhammad too. It's easy to construct a parallel here, and it's striking to me how Dante, who is never very coy about how he feels about others, 
doesn't appear to express or even imply a strong opinion either of opposition or of compassion uh, aside from how severe judges there seem to be because obviously they're quite down in hell. One has to wonder if the politics of his time were on his mind then for once, not for a rant, but like, you know, probably a bit of guilt. Anyway, we get a second person in a quick succession once again. It's one of those scanty that had little psychological, philosophical or theological depth, but a lot of action instead. The new person is someone Dante knew in person, Pierre da Medicina who will give him a message for a couple of contemporaries who will be killed to avenge their betrayal of a tyrant who governed Rimini at the time. Now, I don't know if you have ever been to that area of the world, but all the associated Catholica and Rimini with are overpopulated beaches with bad disco music and dolphins. So I laughed really hard at Dante saying, show me and tell me who it is that was damaged from having seen Rimini. Don't get me wrong, I love to hate it, and have really good memories of many years of holidays there, especially after I became old enough for the cheap wine. I can't begin to picture what it would have been like as a medieval seaside town on which shores people got killed. I guess Dante is now accidentally working for the Board of Tourism boosting the summer population in Marina di Ravenna, which by the way is also a fantastic place for a holiday, and slightly less touristy as most people in the area are just there for Mirabilandia. Next, we see a Roman of ancient days, Curione, who persuaded Caesar to cross the Rubicon. Dante remarks that it's strange to see a man whose tongue was quick to speak in life without a tongue at all in death. After him, a man called Mosca dei Lamberti presents himself, saying Dante must also remember him. And he was right, as not only caused great pain to the Florentines, as he acknowledged, but Dante points out he caused the demise of his own family, at least in Florence. And Dan would go away sorrowful, which I find pretty touching. Dante showed us a wide range of people, from those who don't have any acknowledgement of having sinned at all, to people who seem to have gained that awareness too late for anything to be done about it. Perhaps it's the punishment that drives the regret, rather than actual remorse. But I imagine for some who may have had genuine remorse, the worst punishment was spending eternity with it. Knowing that if only they had been open to God's grace in their lifetime, they'd been spending eternity somewhere else. Lastly, Dante sees a scene that is reticent to report because he, we might think he's lying, but then he reports the, this scene, trusting in our expectation of his good faith. A dam who was holding his own chopped head by his hair like a lantern, walking around sadly saying, poor me. It was a, like one man and two men at the same time, a thing that is said in complete seriousness that only God knows how it's possible. It was Bertrand de Bourne who gave Henry III bad advice and put son against father. It was the case, in fact, that he was crowned while his father was still alive. So, there is a bit of history between France and England to unpack if you're not familiar with medieval Europe. The Italian commentary that I just referred to wrongly addresses the young King Harry as Henry III, when it was never styled that way. It had left me puzzled because Bertrand died before Henry III even got on the throne, and he succeeded his father at the age of nine in the First Baron's War, 
that we mentioned back when we saw Simon de Montfort. The reason why it was never styled as the third is that it was never actually king because it was crowned while his father was still alive. But I guess I should take a step back and give you the full picture of what this conflict was. King Gary II and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine had ten children, five of which were sons. One became a prince, uh, became a prince of the church, while three of them sat on the throne. In 1173, Henry rebelled, supported by his brothers Richard and Geoffrey, and their mother, as well as France, Scotland, Brittany, the Flanders and Boulogne as allies. By that point, he had been junior king for three years, after being crowned at the age of 15 in the custom of the Capetian dynasty that was only embraced in England twice before by King Stephen and King Gary II. He was never given any autonomous power as co-ruler, and that's what sparked the rebellion to take the throne in full. He died during a second attempt at rebellion at the age of 28 in 1183, six years before his father, losing therefore any chance of sitting on the throne on his own and passing down in England Henry III rather than the young King Henry. Bertrand de Bourne, Viscount of Otford, was one of Richard's men and he supported him in the rebellion against his father, so it seems more likely the man he advised was Richard, although it's not impossible that he had Henry's ears. Dante uses the words young king as if it definitely means Henry rather than young Prince Richard, because il in Italian has the same sense of determination as the in English, and it sounds like he was introducing someone people would have known without a doubt. It's possible this is another situation in which Dante accidentally or deliberately plays a bit with history, so perhaps I'm making it a bigger deal than it deserves. I guess advising a younger brother to join the rebellion of the eldest isn't as exciting, and Dante may have had an axe to grind because of his poetry too, so I wouldn't be surprised if he inflated his scene to be able to fit him in with the story. We end the canto with very precise medical observations on the contrapasso, and an abrupt end to the action like most days. Bye! Thank you for listening to today's episode of Alessia's Divine Comedy, A Journey Through Dante's Masterpiece. Thank you also to Alexander Nakarada for the music, which is fun for 10 or ads if it was not meant as a Roman numeral, and is available in the public domain. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Alessia underscore chic or on my blog www.chicandcatholic.com.